Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 86. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about apologetics and the problem of Christian history with Dr. John Dixon, who is the Distinguished Fellow and Senior Lecturer in Public Christianity at Ridley College, Melbourne, and the author of a number of books, including most recently, Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History, published by Zondervan. He's also the host of a podcast called Undeceptions. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. With this conversation with Dr. Dixon, we're really trying to address some of those thorny issues of Christian history. And Dr. Dixon has a lot of helpful insights into thinking about some of the sort of worst aspects of our, of our history. Chris and Amber, what, what did you two think of our conversation with Dr. Dixon? I love how he described church history as Christ having written a beautiful song or a beautiful tune, and then the church sings that song, and that's the Christian life, is singing the song of Christ. Um, And throughout church history, you have so many examples, uh, horrible examples of people not singing that beautiful tune. But then you have these counterexamples, these these uh, prophetic examples of of the church coming and singing that tune beautifully, uh, even in the face of that song being corrupted in different ways. Yeah, and I think the complexity of history uh, he really brings to the fore uh, that uh, history isn't this simple linear path, uh, nor is it a set of caricatures that can be. Uh, drawn upon or deployed at will to support uh, various different apologetics or uh, a confessional or even evangelistic enterprises. Uh, But rather there is a depth and complexity to the history that we have. Uh, And I really appreciate that he uh, draws that home uh, to to reside within the local church, uh, that the local church becomes that nexus of uh, Christian expression uh, throughout the ages and uh, even in the church today. All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Dixon. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Dixon. (laughs) You're going to have to call me John or this isn't going to go anywhere. But yeah, g'day. <laughs> nice to well, talk to you. Well, well, John, could you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with apologetics? What what has apologetics been like in your life and ministry and career? Well, I need to confess up front that I that I don't like the word apologetics. I, I know that's going to um, be a bit of a bummer in this context, but um, I know what you mean. I prefer to call it just public Christianity um, because certainly in Australia, the word apologetics is a bit of a damaged brand um, in quite a, in a way that's quite distinct from the American situation. Um, apologetics tends to mean uh, using any argument, even very bad ones, to promote the cause. And people will use it, you know, for politics, you know, political apologetics, uh, as well as uh, religion. And um, so I tend to avoid that. And the other thing is I think apologists uh, have gained a reputation for using really shallow arguments and never uh, delving into a discipline, um, deeply, you know, so you use history or you use science, but you don't actually do the discipline with that caveat. I love apologetics. If all you mean is uh, making Christ public, uh, hearing people's questions, defending Christianity, uh, commending Christianity, you know, explaining the truth and beauty of it. And I've been doing it ever since I became a Christian as a 16 year old with no religion in his upbringing. I'd never been inside a church, but, uh, I met a smart, funny Christian who, um, uh, introduced me to the gospels and it was really Jesus, um, who captivated me. And ever since then, I just discovered that there are people who don't see what I see, who, who um, you know, have reasons for not accepting uh, Christianity. And I've just felt sympathy for them, you know, through my whole uh, Christian life and ministry. 
And you know, I, I would say that, you know, all that I've done, whether it's, you know, the musical stuff or the writing or the, or the media or the academia is, is just because I have a sympathy for those who'd really doubt the whole show. And I want to uh, get alongside them and point them to the true and beautiful. Uh, John, you've had a long um, sort of career with making Christ known in public uh, and engagement with, uh, with that. Do you want to just take us on a highlights tour? Um, of of that, um, you said that you were converted at sixteen, and you've mm-hmm. been involved in music. Um, yeah, yeah. Just take us on a highlight highlights tour. Okay. Uh, so the first the first thing I did to try and make Christ public was start a band. I'd never heard of Christian music, um, which I think was an advantage uh, for us. Um, we we just sort of played pubs and clubs and introduced our faith in between songs. And you know, wrote our own songs and introduced you know themes, and so I, I got to learn to speak to audiences uh, in the context of a pub uh, instead of you know a church, and I'm forever grateful for that. That took off, and you know, was my career for six years. And at the end of that six years, um, we all felt that we were really shallow. You know, you can get impressive and shallow at the same time. You can have you know thirty songs to play great PA and lighting and you tell the same funny stories at that show that you told at the last town. And um, <clears throat> we decided to go to college. So um, having not done any uh, study outside of high school, we all uh, went to theological college, went to more college, did a degree. And that was, that was difficult, uh, you know, going from touring the world with my best mates to learning Greek uh, was a real head spin. But we wanted to deepen our knowledge. You know, we were given this privilege of a platform. And it was in those days that I, I started to write my first books. Um, my, my first books were just um, attempts to communicate, mainly to teenagers in those days, uh, the beauty of Christianity. Um, and uh, those, you know, books became quite a big part of my life. Um, I never really saw myself as a brilliant musician or a brilliant writer, but they were both just ways of making Christ public. After uh, my theology, uh, I, I fell into an um, a ancient history program, did my PhD in ancient history. And again, it's not because I consider myself a natural academic. It's, you know, I want to make Christ public. And having the depth to do that, you know, seemed like a, a plus. Um, I started the Centre for Public Christianity somewhere along there, which is, um, w- was just an attempt to make Christ public, which is kind of the theme of, of my life. And uh, we were just a bunch of scholar communicators who came together to write opinion pieces for the newspapers, to appear on radio, to produce documentaries. I did that for 10 years, loved it. Somewhere in there, I got ordained as an Anglican minister and, um, you know, but one who believes in the resurrection of Jesus, I should add, Um, uh, which I know is not a given when I'm talking to Americans. And so uh, I led a church for some years and um, absolutely loved that because I'm convinced the local church is the best apologetic, the best example of uh, public Christianity that there is, is a local community living out uh, the gospel. And in recent years, um, I, um, I, I've, I'm out of uh, full-time church work and I do a little bit of teaching at Sydney University, a little bit of teaching at Ridley College. And a big part of what I do now is um, a podcast and I continue writing. Now, <laughs> you asked for highlights. So that's the highlights. and. It, some friends have said to me, you don't know what you want to do when you grow up because you've done all these different things. But for me, it's just one thing. It is just one thing, making Christ public. So I've done it in a bunch of different ways, but it is all the same thing. John, on this podcast series, we've been talking a lot about uh, the apologetic enterprise. And I think very similar to what you were saying about how apologetics uh, kind of has a, a bad reputation in the Australian context for different reasons. Um, at some of which you shared, similar in, in our context as well. And so we've been kind of unpacking some of those things, but then trying to think of other constructive ways forward to make Christ public, as you were saying. Um, and you, you talked about uh, one of those things is, is still addressing people's doubts and questions. And I'm curious to know, uh, particularly in the Australian context, what are the main doubts and questions that, that people have? All of the perennial issues remain. It's not like people have turned their back on the question of, you know, 
has science disproved God? There are still people who hold that view. Or, you know, is the history of the Bible reliable? Or, you know, are there arguments for the existence of God? Why does God allow suffering? These still remain, um, but a bunch of questions have been added to them and tend to be the presenting issues now. And they all seem to be around this uh, fear that religion and Christianity in particular is harmful, that it's sinister, life-inhibiting, and um, has, a, has a, a history that is terrible. <clears throat> and if you took it seriously, it would crush your life. Um, and there are many manifestations of this. I mean, there's the simple thing of, you know, didn't the church start the Crusades, et cetera. Uh, but then it, it presents itself in uh, aren't Christians homophobic? You know, they, they hate gay people. They're against gay marriage. Um, the transgender issue is another presenting issue. Um, it, but it's all related to this idea, this fear that religion and Christianity in particular um, are just, they're just not good um, for you um, or they're just not morally good. They're not credible. You know, uh, we have an ethos problem, to put it in Aristotelian terms, you know, and Aristotle said you know, the most persuasive part of persuasion is ethos, character. Um, and when the persuader doesn't have character or isn't perceived to have character, good character, uh, you won't be able to persuade. And I think that is, that is the issue, but there are many ways it manifests itself. Uh, politically would be another one, you know, the fear that Christianity is really just a subterranean political agenda, trying to sort of move its, you know, try to gain power um, in politics or in legislation. But they're all of a piece. They're all to do with this ethos. Your new book, Bullies and Saints, seems designed to address a lot of the issues that you just raised. Would you tell us a little bit about the thesis of that book and what you're trying to accomplish with it? It's an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. So it's a century by century account from the first to the 21st um, of the bullies in the church, uh, of which there have been a few, and the saints. Uh, of which there have also been few, uh, quite a few. Uh, these are these are you know just cliched terms for um, people who you know, employed Christianity to um, push people around and torture and kill people in some cases, um, and uh, and on the other side of the ledger, people who have really sung the beautiful tune of Jesus. Uh, the kind of recurring theme through the whole book is that Christ did write a beautiful tune, like the most beautiful tune. Uh, and Christians have sometimes sung it beautifully, uh, performed it well, and other times not so much, uh, completely out of tune. And what am I trying to do in the book? Uh, you know, on the one hand, um, it's therapy <laughs> for myself uh, because, uh, I, you know, having studied the history for so long, I know where the body's buried and it's not pretty. So um, <laughs> it's an exercise in just being open and honest about that. Uh, taking the log or plank out of my eye uh, as, a, as a Christian. Um, on the other hand, it is a book of history for those who think Christianity has only raped and pillaged its way through history. And my approach to that person is to say, you're partly right. Um, and in fact, you know, here are stories you never would have imagined. It's far worse than you ever thought. You thought the Crusades were bad. Um, so there's, there's a lot of that. And, and, and I'm not just making, you know, I'm not exaggerating the bad or anything like that. I'm not trying to be super woke or anything like that. Uh, I'm just saying there, there is a terrible history here. Um, and here are some of the sociological and historical factors why, you know, Charlemagne would think it plausible to offer people the sword or baptism, <laughs> you know, um, how did we get there? Right, so it's sort of a historical explanation, but on the uh, on the other side of the ledger, I'm trying to help that person see that um, that's not the whole picture. That throughout even the worst parts of church history, there were extraordinary Christians calling the church to account, calling them back to the Jesus of the Gospels, and there isn't in Christianity an inbuilt um, self criticism. Um, you know, there is hardly a period in church history I can think of 
where there wasn't some great reformer who rose up and you know said to the church, "Hey, we're worse than non non Christians here," and preached that and and caused a great reformation, not just the 16th century reformation, but in every in every era, God raises these people up. And I think when the uh, doubter reads an honest history of the good and the bad of Christianity, the the obvious uh, point left, I hope anyway, is that when Christians are raping and pillaging, they are certainly not singing the tune of Jesus. They are out of tune. And when they're building hospitals and establishing charities and arguing for human rights law in the 13th century, uh, they are following the tune of Jesus. They're, they're singing it uh, beautifully. So the problem with the rapacious, violent church uh, isn't its Christianity, it's its lack of Christianity. That's, that's what I'm trying to do, but I do it, you know, from the first through the, through the you know, late antiquity and the whole issue of Constantine through to the so-called dark ages, were, which were not dark, into the early modern period, right through to the um, child sexual abuse scandals uh, of, of recent times. I really appreciate that kind of project in particular as an apologetical enterprise, and I'm putting scare quotes on apologetical. Um, in fact, I think that's a way to really reframe how we think about apologetics. And one of the, the reasons, well, I will, I will say two reasons and I'd love to hear your comments. Um, one is because apologetics oftentimes is really focused on truth, right? Like my, establishing objective truth. And we forget about goodness and beauty and those three things cannot be, they're not isolated from one another in, in vacuums. And, I, and right now, as you picked up on, or as you mentioned, uh, the question is less, you know, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And it's more, is Christianity beautiful and is it good? And I think those are very legitimate questions that are also tied up into the truth question. Um, so I, I love the way you're approaching it for, for that reason. But the other reason why I like it is because apologetics in the way that we traditionally think about it, at least in North America, um, it is all about defending Christianity from criticism, right? It's all about resisting criticism. Whereas what you're doing is actually highlighting the self-criticism that has been present internal to Christianity. Um, and I mean, that's supposed to be present internal to individual lives, internal to churches and communities of faith. Um, in, in all eras and, and you're highlighting that and bringing it up. And I, I think that's so important, especially with people being so frustrated with leaders trying to save face and dig their heels in, uh, when sin is exposed, right. Mm -hmm. Which is just the wrong thing. You're, you're pushing people away even faster and for good reason. So, I mean, going back to the first point, you know, people do, um, have a hunch or many do anyway, that if something's not good or, you know, beautiful, we might say, it's probably not true as well. It's a really interesting thing in the human uh, psyche um, that, we, that we suspect an ugly, harsh thing not to be true. Um, and we are drawn to the truth behind the beautiful and, and good. I mean, that, that is, of course, you know, extremely Aristotelian. That's exactly uh, that, that coincidence of true and good uh, in Aristotle is, is clear. But, it, but it's, you know, I think Christianity w would agree that um, it's hard to say the truth of the thing if, um, there's, you know, if it's presented in an ugly fashion. And it was Paul who, who said um, that the, the Christian life lived out in honesty and humility uh, can beautify the teaching of God our Saviour, cosmeo. Uh, to beautify the teaching of God, our Savior. And I think that's, you know, that's the truth and beauty uh, right there. In terms of, you know, conceding, I honestly think that, um, not that I think so much in terms of apologetics, but in terms of just being a public Christian, um, uh, conceding is, is part of the enterprise um, because there's a lot to concede. Um, you know, argumentatively or intellectually, there have been some really bad arguments for Christianity over the years. And so conceding that that's rubbish uh, is, is valuable. Um, there have been some terrible actions of the church in the past and the present. And conceding that just seems, you know, not, it's not even a, a tactic. It's, uh, it's just true. Um, 
and and in, in its own way commends a truth about the gospel, which is we already believe that we're rotten <laughs> through and through. We're not the ones who walk around in the fantasy that we're good through and through and only getting better. I don't know how I could handle that, you know, as a life motto. I can't get to nine o'clock in the morning without, you know, knowing that's not true. Um, so <clears throat> um, Christians confess their sins every day. Uh, so, you know, it's part of our makeup to be open. And I have had, I mean, the only criticism I've received from the book, um, which, which has been well received thus far, but the criticism has come from conservative Christians, my own conservative Christian tribe, who think I'm letting the team down by airing the dirty laundry of the church in, in the public. And I, I don't get it. Like, there's just something like, that's one thing I'm not on the same wavelength with my conservative brothers and sisters, um, because it just seems the most basic Christian thing to admit I am poor in spirit. It's the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, before we get to all the love and purity and everything, it's the, the blessing is for those who are poor in spirit, who know that they're bankrupt in spirit. Um, it's, you know, G Jesus wants his disciples to uh, feel that their own sin is like a plank in the eye and the sin of others is a speck. I find that really, really interesting. You know, take the plank, then you'll see the speck. Um, and what does that mean? I, I guess it means your own sin should feel like a plank to you. Um, and, you know, a, a book like this, I, I'm just trying to do the honest, you know, trying to be honest. Um, and, and in that, presenting something of the, of the truth of the Christian faith, that we are all fallen, including the church. I think that's very interesting that you say the greatest criticism has come from more of the conservative fundamentalist side, um, that there seems to be this idea, you know, as you said, of letting the team down. There's this concept in Italian um, called bella figura, and it's just, it means like a beautiful figure. And it's, you have to make a beautiful figure is how it's literally translated. So when it it's basically means to impress people. And to make sure that you are always looking put together and you're just, yeah, making people think the best of you and you can't let there be any cracks. And I, I think that that oftentimes is how we approach apologetics is sometimes we have to make Christianity have this bella figura. Um, and so we have to cover up any potential blemishes or cracks or problems um, and find ways to defend it, even if they're bad arguments, like, well, at least we have something that we can say about it. Um, because if we don't, then it might crumble. And that really kind of is a very brittle concept of faith. Uh, and when you're talking about the Christian life, not as a set of axioms or whatever, but as a song that's written by Christ. Uh, that's just a very different way of, of looking at what the apologetical life or the Christian life, you know, the public life as Christians is. Mm. People see through, uh, you know, the beautiful form, the beautiful figure, you know, if it's just presented as cover, it's a whitewash, right? I mean, I mean enough of the truth of church history is out <laughs> for, for us trying to cover the cracks never to work again, right? Like, there's just no way it can. And there are books that are just, you know, all how wonderful Christianity is and how, how it's given us everything that we like in the world. Um, and I just, I just can't see that having any power. Uh, I think, you know, oddly, uh, paradoxically, that there is a beauty in being open about uh, the, the ugliness of the church and the way the, you know, the Christ himself uh, urged us to be open about our faults and um, pointing hypocrisy, pointing at hypocrisy isn't a late, you know, enlightenment secular tradition. It is entirely a Christian tradition. Um, it, is, it is such a massive theme in the gospels to expose hypocrisy. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us um, that Christian leaders through history have have done that, have exposed the hypocrisy in the church. And I I genuinely think the people who aren't Christians to read that, you know, to read, to read of their um the, you know, the incredible wealth of the church uh in the eighth and ninth centuries, uh, ninth and tenth centuries rather, and um, you know, 
then see a figure like Otto of Cluny rise up in France uh, and call the whole church to repentance and end up causing a massive renewal across Europe as a result of this one figure who uh, was a reformer. I think when people who aren't Christians read a life like that, they go, yeah, that's the kind of, that's a good thing, exposing hypocrisy and, and turning people back around to the good. Well, that happens through the whole of church history, and I think there is something beautiful about it. But the, the thing that is constantly beautiful is the tune of Jesus, is the melody of Jesus, that, um, you know, which I say in the book is boils down to um, love your enemies, uh, something that Jesus took you know, all the way to a cross. You know, it isn't just an arbitrary ethic. It is what the whole, uh, his whole life purpose was, to give his life for enemies. Um, and that is a beautiful tune that resonates through history. So a lot of the time uh, when people are talking about the, the, the dark side of the church, I guess, uh, the Crusades will be brought up. It's the inevitable sort of thing that um, everyone from uh, kids at, in the playground, usually secondary kids in the playground, um, through to um, you know, the, the more famous anti-theistic um, apologists anti-apologists is that i don't know which it's still an apologetic enterprise i guess yeah, um is. so you know the crusades are the dark dark part of history they're all religious wars um and at the same time then you have christian apologists who go out and write books um on effectively defending the crusades as just war and the the justified war uh and I remember reading a, a, a phrase saying that Amalric's Cadite uh, Eos, um, kill them all um, sort of line about the, um, the Albigensian crusade is an example of, well, this is God's purification. And this is actually God's loving, uh, the, the crusaders loving their enemy um, by arranging an appointment with God, which is... Um, which, interesting, is much the same rhetoric that is often used of modern engagements um, in the Middle East. Uh, but interested, what pushes back against that uh, in, in your in your view? Where's the pushback in that's happening? And maybe if you could work through, I guess, the the process of that for us and for the listeners. The, the Crusades are so complicated, which is why I spent about 10,000 words uh, trying to you know unpack those Crusades. Part of the problem is I think a decent case can be made that at least the First Crusade uh, was notionally a just war um, in, in the sense that um, you know, the rhetoric was around protecting uh, the Byzantine Empire from Islamic aggression. They looked back on the previous couple of hundred years and saw that Muslim expansion was basically unstoppable. Uh, Muslim leaders were making it increasingly difficult for any Christians to visit Jerusalem, and you know, so the you know, there was this sense that we need to go and help out. Okay, and a lot of people were motivated by that. Um, at the same time, there's a, there was a theology laid over this that is disgusting, um, and and that is that if um, if you get if you happen to get killed. Um, or even if you don't happen to get killed, so long as you fight against these infidels, these Muslims, you will guarantee your salvation. This is a penance that stands for all penance, was uh, what Pope Urban uh, um, insisted upon with his papal decree. Um, so you could cover all your sins or the temporal punishments of your, of your, of your sins, according to Roman Catholic theology, um, by participating in this. Now, I think that is to pervert Christianity at its core. Um, and then along the way to the crusade, they conducted themselves, uh, well, some of them anyway, um, in a way that is completely contrary to just war principle. So any attempt to say this was a just war uh, might in theory be correct, but faces the problem that crusaders slaughtered Jewish villages along the Rhine as they made their way to the Holy Land for practice. And partly to um, uh, take revenge on on the so-called Christ killers, and when they arrived at Jerusalem um, and took 
uh, took Jerusalem on July 15, 1099, uh, they slaughtered men, women, and children, uh, which opposes every principle of just war. So uh, what, what am I saying? I'm saying it's messy. I'm saying I can see why people would try and defend the Crusades as a just war, because I tend to agree it was, because I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist in the ultimate sense, um, I tend to agree that it, that it was a reasonable European response to uh, aggression against the Byzantine Empire, which looked like it was falling. Um, but the way the war was conducted, I think, was despicable and made it anything but a just war. And I, I, and I don't think it can be re rehabilitated as a just war, even if I think it started notionally as such. <laughs> I mean, and that's the first crusade. Don't, you know, when we start talking about the second, you know, the second was driven by, you know, a vengeful mentality and um, uh, all the same principles applied, except it was overlaid with the sense that, you know, how did the Muslims defeat us? And that's the other thing that's worth keeping in mind. The crusades were a whopping failure. It's only in the modern world that people have thought of the crusades as the great bully wars that crushed the poor Muslims. For all of Islamic history, <laughs> since the Crusades, they've been telling the Crusades as proof that uh, Western Christendom uh, is hopeless um, at wars and that, that God obviously wasn't behind their wars. Because although they took Jerusalem in that bloody campaign, um, they only held Jerusalem for mere decades before they were booted out. And then, and then they never got it again. They never took it again. Um, second, third, fourth, fifth crusades, they did not retake the land. And Muslims just looked at that and went, ha, puny Christendom. Until the late 1900s, uh, sorry, the late 1800s uh, into the early 1900s, when uh, the Turkish rulers began to use crusade language um, to apply to uh, what Western European powers were doing in the Baltics, right? Um, pushing out uh, the, the the Ottoman Empire out of the Baltic regions. And um, that was called a crusade, right? And, and, and the, the Muslim world rallied behind that. And so now we have associated the word crusade with a, the Western bully crushing the Muslims. But there is no doubt that the modern secular Western oppression of Islamic lands was infinitely more successful than the medieval crusades ever were. Thanks, Joe. I think the um the complexity there is actually of great benefit. I mean, it it highlights that so often our uh, historical understanding, how historical context uh, for uh, projection is so simplistic. Uh, I'm reminded of um, George Santayana's infamous, famous quote uh, that those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it, um, that there is this sense of uh, if we don't remember uh, what has happened accurately, uh, then there is a, sen a sense in which uh, there is a continuity or, a, or more literally a failure of continuity uh, in how we uh, continue on with that. Um, interested. As well, so you said earlier that you've had some, the majority of the pushbacks being from conservative Christians, from uh, people within the church. Uh, I'm interested partly because um, surely this would be then be a reminder for us that if we are to, uh, to do Christianity well, uh, there are pastoral implications of knowing our history well. At the moment, we have um, engagements with uh, or questions of slavery and questions of whether or not it is right or was right for historical figures uh, to hold slaves. Uh, I'm thinking of more recent defences of, uh, say, for, uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, slaveholding. Um, and you have this sense in which uh, modern, not just modern apologists, but uh, modern preachers, leaders of churches, are, are seeking to defend internal historical uh, questions uh, and often doing so without uh, a robust grasp on history. How would you say that 
or what would you say to that situation of uh, historical um, accurate, not accuracy, historical knowledge, historical engagement there for for knowledge within the church, for for and for behaviour within the church. The the problem is people often dip into history per se or church history in particular um, for a modern ideological agenda. In other words, they're not interested in history. They're only interested in stories that back up my particular tribe today. And that that's, I think that's really unfortunate um, because there there is a wellspring in genuine history that is uh, simultaneously uh, worse than we ever imagined and better than we ever imagined. Um, and I, I think that the, one of the great benefits of doing real history instead of just, you know, culture wars using historical stories is that you, you, you see yourself in your forebears and you come to believe, uh, you come to worry that a people a hundred years from now will view me like I view the slaveholders, Christian slaveholders of the past, or, you know, um, the Christian rioters of the fourth century in Alexandria or, uh, you know, the, the Christian jihad that Charlemagne led. Um, I think it, it produces, um, Genuine history produces a humility, I think is what I'm, what I'm trying to say, so that you don't feel like you have to defend a Christian slaveholder. You, you can lament it. You, you can agree that they should have seen it otherwise because there were plenty of Christians who saw it otherwise through history. Christians were trying to free slaves from the second century. Um, Christians were preaching against slavery in the fourth century. Uh, they were conducting... Um, slave freeing raids in the fifth century. Um, a bishop was wandering around Europe freeing slaves with his vast wealth in the seventh century. Um, so there are plenty of Christians who are able to see the truth. We can't just say, oh, they were products of their time. So if you look at a Christian slaveholder, uh, my, you know, my greatest hero, uh, evangelist hero, good reformed Anglican evangelist is George Whitfield, right? But he, he is implicated too in, um, in slaveholding. When I look at that, I just, I do lament and, and I see it as wrong and think, how could he possibly have done that? And then my next thought, and perhaps the dominant thought is, I wonder what is in me. I wonder what I can't see today. 200 years from now, will the church look back on John Dixon and say, was he really a Christian? You know? Look how materialistic he was. Look at the kind of house he lived in. You know, look at look at the money he spent on books. You know, look how he loved his wine and while the while the poor just wasted away around the world. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the criticism, right? Because it's a blind spot for me. How would I know? Um, but I know I'm made of the same stuff as George Whitfield, and so um, I leave George Whitfield to the wisdom and mercy of God. <laughs> and I and I leave myself uh, in that same wisdom and mercy, and and try, try uh, to walk humbly in this world. And I I do regard that as the one of the great chief benefits of doing genuine history instead of the culture wars that that history is often used for. One of the things you said at the beginning of our conversation was that you think that the local church is the best apologetic. I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit more. Well, it's hard for a single Christian to uh, demonstrate the whole Christian life um, because the Christian life is so much about new community, uh, people in relationships, which, you know, to speak theologically, points ultimately to God's own inner nature uh, as three persons in um, perfect unity. So an individual Christian can proclaim the gospel, and that's wonderful. An individual Christian can be um, you know, moral and ethical, and that, that's great. Um, without that, the, you know, it, there is a sense in which the gospel is undermined. But it's really the local church that pulls all of this together, that is able best to pro proclaim the gospel, 
and then live out the gospel in community. And I have just seen time and time again that a skeptic may read uh, a book about Christianity and go, oh, yeah, okay, maybe Christians aren't as dumb and mean as I thought, but that's as far as you'll get them. But then they may bump into a little church, uh, you know, that's, that's loving one another and looking after the sick and providing food and shelter uh, for those in need in the local community. And that's where the defences really come down. But that's where the scepticism that was merely theoretical or, or the, you know, the, the response to, say, a, a, a book like mine might be merely theoretical. You know, a, an atheist may read my book and go, okay, maybe Christians weren't as bad as I thought. But it's when they bump into a church and see the beautiful tune that they'll be able to hear the beautiful tune. So that's why I, I, I genuinely think the local church is, um, is the best apologetic that we have going. Um, it was Leslie Newbigin, the great missionary bishop, who, who said that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's the thing that interprets the gospel to people looking on. I think, I think that's right. So our gospel is about the humility of God in Christ. Well, if a skeptic bumps into a church that's, you know, humble, not triumphalist, uh, that, com- you know, that explains that part of the gospel to them. Um, our gospel is about uh, forgiveness uh, of sins. Uh, if a skeptic bumps into a church where that's just, you know, here's a bunch of people who know that they're forgiven and are really forgiving, uh, that, that commends the gospel. Um, that's what I mean by the church being the best apologetic. Is this a, a, a plea for more humble churches, please? Yeah. Along the lines of Kendrick Lamar's more humble rappers, please? Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, the, our gospel calls for humble churches. Um, you know, that, that Philippians 2 business is just uh, out of this world. We, we're, we're so attuned. Uh, no, we're not attuned. We're so used to. Philippians 2, right? This, the great call to the Philippian church, a church uh, that was, you know, based in a Roman colony, a church that, um, you know, no doubt, you know, culturally they felt good about themselves. They were an important city in the empire, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the thing Paul asks of them above all else is that they uh, have, you know, the same mind, the same love. They uh, regard each other in humility have the mind of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and all the way to the cross, right? So um, in, in, the, in the ancient world, that was a revolution. That notion of self-giving was a revolution. And I think that is the key to the Christian um, revolution in the ancient world. Um, people, people wrongly think you know, the success of Christianity came because Constantine forced everyone to become Christians in the fourth century. I mean, and that's nuts historically. People just use that as a, you know, a cliche um, about power. The, the thing that really transformed the Roman world, and it was before Constantine, was Christians being humble and churches being humble, uh, churches being beaten down, church leaders being executed, and the church continued to smile sweetly. And not because they had a slave mentality, as Nietzsche thought, but because they had a winner's mentality, actually. They thought they, they had won already because Christ had won. The, the only thing they have to worry about is um, looking like the cross. Uh, because when, you know, when Jesus went to the cross, God raised him from the dead. God will vindicate the humble. So we just worry about looking like the cross. And we just leave the results to God. That, that's how the early Christians um, lived and proclaimed and transformed uh, the Roman world. So that when Constantine did become a Christian, um, huge numbers of the empire were already, already Christians and already on board. Uh, so yes, more humble churches, please. On that point about humility, I'm curious what you think about how in that passage, you know, it's often translated as although he was in the form of God, typically as a concession, you know, it's the participle who parkone, which could be taken concessively, but it could also be causal. And there are a number of scholars uh, who've, who've argued that it, we ought to translate it because he was in the form of God. Um, what's your take on that as this sort of uh, display of God's own humility in what Christ does. 
can I take an each way bet and say that um, I, I do I do suspect its form is concessive, right? Um, but that the truth it's trying to convey by the time you get to the middle of the first stanza um, is that this is exactly what God is like because this is the mind of Christ. So it's it's it, it's almost like it's appealing to the um, non-Christian mindset. Although you think that glorious God would, you know, uh, call all of its rights to itself, this is what Jesus did. Okay, and so I think grammatically it is probably concessive, but um, but the point is that um, God it, God in Christ is of such character that He upends all the notions of Roman gloria. That that is his inner life to give himself, and it is unexpected. And I think that's that's what's going on in that in that hymn. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about just the church being the greatest apologetic, it, if you think about it, it's so much easier to research and go to conferences and to sort of load yourself up with the ammunition of all of these arguments, um, or even do some kind of massive evangelism campaign or something like that, than it is to cultivate healthy. Uh, Christ-centered relationships with other people where you're practicing forgiveness and you're serving and you're laying yourself down for the other and living in that kind of a community and service, that's really hard. And a lot of times it's it's easier and it can also be something that we occupy ourselves with (laughs) to prevent us from actually doing that kind of work, which is actually the kind of things that are the most winsome and the most compelling to the outside world. Yeah, I I am all for the academic study and you know theology and taking disciplines seriously in in the cause of Christ. Uh, but in the end, then that's not how the world changes. Um, it is local Christian communities uh, that live out the gospel that are really uh, I'm convinced are, are what are transformative. Um, I saw, you know, as many people in my time as a, as a, um, minister in the Anglican church, um, as many people, uh, become Christians just, just by coming into the orbit of, of, you know, my little St. Andrews Roseville, um, as I ever did through my sort of more public proclamation and, um, you know, although my life now is more about that public proclamation and writing books and podcasts and that sort of thing, um, I, I still think that the local church is the most important thing. I, I just came to the point where I realised um, I'm, I'm probably a better use to the church, uh, not as a minister of one church, but a, a doing the sorts of things that I do. But I still think that ministers in local churches uh, and the local churches themselves are the most important thing, far more important than, um, you know, the public evangelist or apologist or you know, filmmaker or podcaster, with due respect to great podcasters like yourselves. Uh, I think that that is actually one of those areas where it is, there is that tension um, in that uh, for, for the church as a whole, the way that we have set it up is such that there is that pull towards large events uh, things that people can do and, and rather than towards their own uh, local church. Um, now that part of that is, is the, the involvement with um, fame and, you know, being so part of something that's bigger than yourself and bigger than, than what you normally experience. Um, interesting your reflections. I mean, John, you've, as, as both Packers fans, as cheeseheads, you know, you, you've been, uh, you've regularly been able to just talk to the to, to the Packers. Um, and, you know, there is that engagement with something that is greater. And yet you're still saying that the, uh, the ultimate engagement is at that local level. How do you, how do you draw that tension for yourself? I'm interested. <laughs> well, I'll never give up an opportunity to um, go talk to the Packers, but <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's trivial by comparison. To, to the local church. Um, you know, I mean, the whole Packers thing 
was was bizarre because I'd never heard of them uh, before I got invited to go and talk to them for the first time. Um, and it was my son who who you know had heard of them, so he had to interpret the email to me and tell me I really should accept the invitation to speak to them. Um, and he came with me, which was which was lovely. And I, and I've done it um, you know, ten or fifteen times now over the years. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, I can't really put my finger on um, the value of it, but it's it's been exciting. Um, but you know, so much of our culture thinks that that's where, at least at the trivial level, thinks that that's where life is at. You know, a full stadium at Lambeau Field. You know the. The, the dancing girls, the ads, you know, the, the, the fit men crushing into each other. And you have, you know, we think that's, that's culture. That's exciting because it's bigger than anything else that we experience. Um, but it's, you know, complete myth. The real action is the little church um, that I can picture just down the road from Lambeau Field that's got a wonderful pantry um, every Wednesday, people of Green Bay turn up, um, can take whatever they want from this, you know, massive pantry and um, cool room that the church runs. Uh, they, they run leadership seminars. They run schools, things, youth things. And, of course, church services on Sunday, that's the real action in Green Bay. And I say that with all due respect to my, our beloved Packers, Chris. Well, John, thank you so much for, for joining us and for that, that good word about the importance of, of the local church. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.